Church family, you can grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, where beginning today, I'd like us to to start a study through this book. If you were to ask, how old is Highland Crest? If I'm not mistaken, Highland Crest began in January, and it was either 68 or or 69 years ago. It might be be wrong, but I think that's about right. But if you were to ask, how old is the church, we would say more like about 2,000 years ago. And in God's kindness to us, we have the book of Acts that helps us to have a historical account of the beginnings of the church. And so this morning, what I'd like to do, if you would join me, is just do a little introduction to this book. We're going to cover the basics of Acts in the first two verses. We're going to look at this promise that Jesus made to the disciples. And then we're going to see what did the disciples do while they waited. Father, we pray that you would add understanding to not only our minds, but allow us to apply this understanding to our hearts today. In Jesus' name. I am particularly interested and how the early church did it. I mean, think about it today. In our day, we might say, how could they even have a church if they don't have a website? Or how could they have a church if they don't have a building or hymnals or just proven leaders? How could they do it without Sunday school? And what we're going to see today, and while they didn't have much, they had one another, and they had the Spirit of God. So let's look at Acts chapter 1. To begin with, let's just read the first two verses together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. In the first two verses, let us just Consider some of the basics of Acts. Who is the author here of Acts? We see that it is none other than Luke. Maybe you have heard of the Gospel of Luke. He is the same author of the Gospel of Luke as the same author as here of the book of Acts. Who is he? According to Colossians chapter 4 verse 14, he was a doctor. But we could review the early verses of Luke chapter 1 and we find out that he was also one who did research. We might say he was like a first century Indiana Jones. Yes, he was trained, but he also loved to figure things out. And according to Luke chapter 1, the first four verses, he had eyewitnesses that he asked, to provide an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we can assume that he applied the same techniques here to learning about how the church began. One pastor named James Montgomery Boyce said that back in the first century, a a scroll, if rolled out, could extend to about 35 feet. It is possible that one scroll would have contained the Gospel of Luke. That would have been volume one. And the second scroll could have been rolled out to another 35 feet, may have contained the book of Acts. 
So you've got volume one and you've got volume two. Now, every volume one and volume two needs to have an ending point and a beginning point. The Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus, where Jesus returns after his resurrection back to his father in heaven. And the book of Acts begins at the very same spot where Jesus is about ready to ascend back into heaven. One has pointed out that Luke has written about 25% of all of the New Testament. So it says here, in the first book, O Theophilus, it was written for Theophilus. And we see Theophilus' name mentioned also in Luke 1. A good question for us is, who is this guy? It is a Roman name. The name means friend of God. But the truth is, we don't really know who this Theophilus is. We can conclude that he is a seeker. He is a seeker of truth. It is possible that he may have been a wealthy man that would have paid for this research project that Luke undertook. The scriptures declare that his first book detailed what Jesus taught until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. But another basics of Acts is that this is established on the many proofs of Jesus' resurrection. Follow with me in verse 3. It says in verse 3 that Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I think verse 3 is really significant for us. It establishes that Jesus lived on this earth 40 days after his resurrection. Why? I think verse 3 answers that question. To provide many proofs that he had raised from the dead. Our faith is distinctive in that the one whom we serve is no longer dead, but he is alive. Our faith is built on a historic fact that Jesus is no longer in the grave, but he is raised to life. And so he lived for 40 days after his resurrection to prove that for people and for historians. This is the only place in the New Testament that we see that Jesus lived 40 days following his resurrection. Then we have the promise of the Holy Spirit, picking it up in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here are his instructions. You wait, and the Holy Spirit will come. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this is fascinating, isn't it? Here are the apostles, these 11 remaining disciples who had been with Jesus for over three years. They lived with him. They heard him preach. They saw him perform miracles. And at the end of his death, 
and resurrection, it is clear that they do not understand the purpose for which he came. And so they ask him, is it at this time you're going to establish our nation again into a military or into a political power? And Jesus did not come for that reason, but for a spiritual power. And maybe you've had this experience yourself as you have been walking with Christ and you've taken the word of truth and maybe you've shared it with someone that you really care for. It could be a child. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. And as you share that truth with them, it's as if there's a veil over the eyes of their hearts and they don't get it. Well, this is exactly what we see here in this passage. These disciples who have been with Jesus are are not even asking the right question. Verse 7 says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And then He launches into verse 8, which I think is the maybe the most important verse of chapter 1. It serves as the table of contents for the entire book of Acts. He says this to the disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. There is this promise of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit will bring power to proclaim the gospel. Being filled with the Spirit is a phrase that we will see 14 times through the book of Acts. It is clearly a theme. Michael Green in a commentator, wrote something that I thought was really insightful. Listen to this. He says, three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. Those three decades are the three decades that are chronicled in the book of Acts. He says, in those 30 years... It got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion of the world that has ever seen to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion followers. It has left an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time and when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. And that is powerful, is it not? Twelve men, a handful of women, and the Holy Spirit comes. And our civilization has forever been changed. Someone has said that this book is not accurately titled. It should not be Acts of the Apostles. It should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I tend to agree with them. This book is not so much about the heroes of the disciples. It really is about what happens when God's Spirit works in people's lives. And I hope that this series, as we work through this book of Acts, will bring you a tremendous encouragement. And maybe you have been one that have just been kind of eking out and struggling and by self-effort have been trying to obey God and His commands. May we see in the book of Acts that that is not what the Christian life is about. 
but it is by being filled with His Spirit, being dependent on Him and receiving the power of God to, to go out and do what God wants us to do. The Spirit would come and would provide power to be witness, to take this gospel message to all these different areas. In fact, I mentioned that this serves as a bit of a table of contents. Because in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That really is the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. Then it says the next geographic area is Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 through 12 of Acts. The gospel will be taken to Judea and Samaria. And then the third geographic location is the end of the earth. And that's chapters 13 through 28. So chapter 1, verse 8, serves as a bit of a table of contents for us. Of how this gospel message will start there in Jerusalem, will go to Judea and Samaria, and then will go to the end of the earth. And these three areas are not just geographic, but they are also social, are they not? Jerusalem was among Jews. And so the faith there of these local people were like, hey, I have no problem bringing the gospel to people who are like me. But then they are challenged to to expand that, to take it to the Samaritans, who are made up of half Jew and half Assyrians, in in chapters 8 through 12. And then they are challenged to take the gospel to just outright Gentiles, in chapters 13 through 28. And so the heart of these Christians are going to be challenged to share the gospel with people who are unlike them, to go to places that they have yet to be. The promise of the Holy Spirit will bring power to proclaim the gospel. But I think we will also see here in the book of Acts that this gospel will not only drive people out to share the gospel, but it will also display the the power of God over sin. We'll see that lived out in the early church. Just this past weekend, uh, many couples from our church got to go up to Door County for a marriage retreat. And there we took in some curriculum by Family Life Today. And we heard about a young couple named Hans and Star Mailgraf. And, and these two young couples were at odds with one another. Hans had a real anger problem, and he was explosive. And this wife of his named Star knew all the buttons to push, and she would push them. And at one time, Hans' anger was so fierce, that he actually grabbed his wife by the arms and threw her down on the bed. And that was a blow to their marriage. And she packed his bags and said, you need to leave. And Hans went to his parents, and his parents said, you can stay here, but you need to get Bible counseling. And he did. And he, there was a counselor there that took the Bible and says, Hans, you need to get right with God. You need to repent of your sins. And when he did that, and he became right with God, he received the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit entered his life. And he became a radically changed husband and father. So when he came connected again to his wife, Star, she began to push those buttons like she had for all those years. And you know what? He was now a new person. And it did not have the same effects anymore. And God began to transform that marriage. So this power of the Holy Spirit is not just a first century thing. We can still experience it today. And I'm looking forward to learning about it and reading about it along with you as we work through the book of Acts.
Let's consider the third part here. What did the apostles do while they waited? Well, let's, let's finish looking at verse 9. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So there is Jesus proclaiming, you wait, the Holy Spirit will come. And as he is saying these things, a cloud comes around him. Some have said, this is the glory of God that has come around him. Verse 10 says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. This will be one of six times that we will see angels surface in the book of Acts. Verse 11 says, And these angels said to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way that you see Jesus today, fully God and fully man, he will ascend into heaven and he will return in the same way, fully God and fully man. He will come back in a bodily form. This sets forth for him some essential doctrines of who Jesus is. So there's, there's the promise. The Holy Spirit will come. Now, how did the disciples wait? What would they do while they waited for this promise to be fulfilled? If you know your history of your Old Testament festivals, then you know that Jesus was crucified and raised to life on the Passover festival. And then if you know Acts, the layout of chapter 2, you know that there was another festival called Pentecost. And that there were 50 days between the Passover and Pentecost. And again, how long was Jesus on earth after his resurrection? 40, that's right. So 50 minus 40 is 10 days. Approximately 10 days, these disciples would have to wait. And I would ask you, how long have you been waiting? What is something that you are waiting on? As I ask myself that question, I consider the course of my life. I can certainly remember days where I'm like, man, I just cannot wait to get out of school. I can think of times where I cannot wait to one day get married. And then I can think of, I cannot wait to get married to Melody. That's going to be so wonderful. And then I can think of times where I'm like, I cannot wait for this child to be born. Or this challenge, this problem in my life to be lifted. And some of you might be asking, I cannot wait for this sermon to end, right? (laughs) There's consistent things that we will always be wondering and waiting on. But what I appreciate about the rest of chapter 1 is I think the disciples actually provide a really good example to us of what we can do while we are waiting. So let's consider this. What did the disciples do while they waited? Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. The first thing they did is they obeyed what they knew to do. Do you see it there in verse 12? They returned to Jerusalem. This is exactly what Jesus told them to do in verse 4. So while we are waiting, what is it that God has asked us to do? Well, he asked us to go back to Jerusalem. So let's go back to Jerusalem and we'll wait there. Verse 12 says it was a Sabbath day journey away. Research I've done says that would be less than 0.6 miles. So a, a short walk. 
So the first thing they did is they obeyed what they knew to do. The second thing we're going to see is they gathered together. Look with me at verse 13. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room. You notice the word the upper room. I suspect then that this is the same upper room that the disciples had the Lord's Supper with Jesus. It says, and they went up to the upper room where they were staying. There was Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The second thing they did is they gathered together. There were the eleven disciples. There was also Jesus' mother, Mary. There were also a collection of women. And then you also notice there at the end of verse 14, there was Jesus' brothers. Did you know that there were five boys in that family? There was Jesus. And then according to Mark 6, verse 3, there was four other boys. There was James, who is the one who wrote the book of James. There was Joseph, Judas, and, and Simon. And now these four brothers are present there in the upper room. And I suppose if we had a brother that claimed to be God, we saw him crucified and then raised to life for 40 days, we would probably go to the upper room as well. We would be convinced that he is who he claimed to be. For what it's worth, Jesus also had sisters. According to Matthew 13, verse 56, we see the word sisters, plural, so a minimum of two. Who knows how many that could be? So Jesus had a large family and they were gathered there. You'll notice there in verse 14 it says, And they were with one accord. Now why do you think it was important for them as they are waiting on Jesus to fulfill his promise to gather together? I don't know about you, but when I isolate myself, I am susceptible to all sorts of doubts and worries. Let us follow the cues here of these disciples. While we are waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promise, let us come and be of one accord. Let us be unified. If you were with us last week, then you know that one of the themes that we're going to have for 2020 is for us to to be together. Not only in a large assembly like this, but also in a Bible study group. Like a Sunday morning that meets at 9 o'clock. Or beginning February 9th, there's going to be a few groups that are going to be meeting in people's homes. And and there's sign-up sheets for that there out in the entryway or the the main hallway. And I'd urge you to sign up if you haven't already. There's a group in Pulaski, a group in Howard Hobart, and another group there in Green Bay. But the purpose of that was to gather together. This too will be a theme that we will see throughout the book of Acts. How God's people gather together. The third thing that we see that they do while they are waiting is they pray together. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer. So it wasn't like they were just getting together and talking about NFL playoffs. They were getting together and and encouraging one another by calling out to God. Expressing their dependence on God to work in their midst. This is a good example for us as well. The, the fourth thing we see is that they listened 
to the word of God. As they've gathered together, as they've obeyed what they knew to do, as they prayed, we see in verse 15, Peter gets up and he begins to communicate some of the scriptures. Listen to verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And I just want to pause there for a moment. Now, where was Peter some 40 or 50 days before this, on the night of which Jesus was betrayed? Right? He was denying Jesus. How many times? Three different times. And when you consider these disciples and the account that we have of them throughout the Gospels, we see them fighting with one another. We see them arguing about who is going to be the greatest. We see them not washing one another's feet, making Jesus do that. Yet we see in this passage, I think, humility expressed. Where Peter is getting up and he's assuming that right as leader as he has always done with the disciples. And we don't see John interrupting him and saying, hey, who are you to get up and do this? I was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mom. Where were you? No, there was just this understanding that they all had scattered. And now Peter is speaking. The scripture says here, (coughs) the company of persons was in all about 120 And he said, verse 16, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, For he was numbered among us all and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and the reward of his wickedness was falling headlong. He burst open in the middle. And all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akaladama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So they've obeyed what they knew to obey. They've gathered together. They've prayed together. And as often is the case, when we pray, Scripture comes to our mind. And that's what's taking place for Peter. Scriptures from the Old Testament book of Psalms, in chapter 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And these truths come back to speak to their specific situation. And this is it. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, had betrayed Jesus. He had taken those 30 pieces of silver that he had earned for betraying him. You remember what he did with those? He gave them back to the chief priests and the elders and said, I don't want anything to do with this. And they said, this is blood money. What are we going to do with this? And so they took that 30 pieces of silver and bought. The, the, the Gospel of Matthew says it was a potter's field. And here in the book of Acts, we see it called a, a field of blood. It was, it was some land that could be used to bury people who were strangers. The, the account there tells us in the Gospels that, that Judas hung himself. And filling in some more details here in Acts 1, evidently his body collided with the earth and there was this gushing forth of his bowels. Okay? And so the point here that Peter is making is there is a vacancy. And we ought to fill that vacancy. And this leads us then to the final part of what they did. They applied the word of God. 
they applied the word of God. Look with me at verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So here are the qualifications to fill that 12th spot. It's got to be someone that's been with us from the beginning, that was with us with John the Baptist and with us to see Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 23 says, And they put forward two, Joseph called Veraspus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Verse 25, to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is if Peter is saying, listen, while we wait for the Holy Spirit to come, we need to have some leadership formed in place for that. And so they cast lots. They brought two men that met those qualifications. According to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it is every decision is from the Lord. And so while they might not have had dice like us, maybe they had taken some rocks that had some scratches and, and put them on a pot, shaken them up and rolled them out, and one of these two men's were identified as, as Judas's replacement. What is interesting is, from this point forward, We only hear in the book of Acts about two disciples, and that's Peter and John. The remaining ten, we don't hear anything about. So what did they do while they waited? They obeyed what they knew to do. They gathered together. They prayed together. They listened to the word of God, and they applied the word of God. What happened when Jesus came? Did he fulfill his promise? What did it look like when the Holy Spirit did come? We will find answers to these questions, if the Lord wills, next week when we look at Acts chapter 2. But let me conclude with a few remarks. Here's a few summary statements. One, the ministry of Jesus was only beginning when he ascended. Think about that, loved ones. When he ascended, there were around 120 followers of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit falls, suddenly we see this transformation take place throughout the world. And here's the point, that when Jesus ascended, he left his disciples a message. And it's the same message that you and I have today. It is the good news, the good news that we have the privilege of sharing with the power of the Holy Spirit. That good news is a gift. You know, in the fall... During Pastor Appreciation Month, uh, we received a, a gift card for Krolls from the church. What an absolute blessing. During the Christmas break, we took that gift card over to Krolls and we just lived it up. I mean, we got butter burgers, we got cheese curds, and the boys even got malt. It was an artery-filling meal. I mean, it was wonderful. And as I was reflecting on that, it occurred to me that someone else had paid the price. And now as a family, we were reaping the benefits of someone else paying the price for us. In a way, that is a picture of what takes place at the gospel. 
we have available to us a, a fulfilled life in Christ. But someone else has paid the price for us to have that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised three days later. But that's only one view of the gospel. Another view that is also important for us is to realize that the gospel is like a kingdom. That's what we read, I think, in verse 3 here. And where there is a kingdom, there is a king and there are subjects. So yes, the gospel is one in which we, we receive the benefits of someone else paying our price. But it's also an acknowledgement that I, I am not king anymore. And I will submit to the new Lord. Gladly, joyfully, because he knows what is best for my life. And this is the message that is being left as Jesus ascends. And, and church family, do you remember what Jesus did when he ascended into heaven? According to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he intercedes for us. He prays for us. We could say that he wanted to get up to heaven so he could pray for the disciples to carry out this mission he had left them. And he is praying for us still today. The second conclusion we can draw from this is the church is fueled by the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is not so much, let's just do our best, let's organize as tightly as we can, but it really is a dependence on the Spirit of God to work in and among us. This past week I came across a wonderful story by Kent Hughes in his commentary. He said it this way, When the Holy Spirit comes upon followers of Christ, the most unlikely people become fountains of power. The spiritual power is always available, and he displays it according to his sovereign plans. God imparts his power when, when and how he wants. He said it this way. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I noticed that a lot of young people would show up on Sunday morning, but when it came to Wednesday night Bible study, I could hardly get a baker's dozen. Hey, I would have eight, then 15, and then eight. I almost quit. I was so discouraged that I had to depend on the Lord. I remember finally just giving it all to the Lord. And one night, there were only eight. A young man came to know Christ. And he brought another young man to the group. And he came to know Christ. In two months, my group went from 15 to 90. And then 120. I only remember four Wednesday nights out of a year and a half, that someone did not trust Christ. This was, most, this was the most unlikely occurrence and had nothing to do with me. The kids were praying and bringing their friends, and their friends were weeping and repenting and trusting the Lord. There was a life-changing power at work. And my point is, I think that still happens today. It may not be to this scale, but it certainly could be. And may we be encouraged to know that the, that the Holy Spirit is the fuel for the church. And may there be a dependence, a brokenness, that He would work among us. As we wrap this up this morning, I was just thinking of an application, a couple of applications. One, I'd ask you, are you currently in a small group Bible study? We see this, that's what they did here in chapter 1. Have you considered that? Are, are you going to be a part of that? 
And then secondly, would it not be appropriate to follow their examples of prayer? This morning, I had you take a a few cards that were there on your chair and write out some names there for, for you to pray for them over the year to come. Could we not just begin this morning by just doing that ourselves? Why don't we just take a few moments to to get that card back out and look at the names that you wrote down there. And let's take some time to get this off on a good start. And let's pray that God would save those around you. So I'm going to give you a few moments to do just that. And then we'll conclude this portion of our service. Let's take some time to pray. As we think about waiting on God, Are you currently in that phase of your life where you're waiting on Him to do something? And then I'd ask you, is everything that He's put before you to obey, are you currently obeying Him? Are you isolating yourselves from those who could encourage you? Or are you as best you can, coming alongside them to be an encouragement to others, to be reminded of God's promises and the truths there. Are you asking people to pray for you? Are you praying for others during this time? Are you in the Word to to be able to be reminded of these promises to encourage you? Are you applying these scriptures to your life? And this is not about performance. It's not about working to, to try to gain God's favor. But are there, has there been a time where you've surrendered and independence said, I received the gift that has been given. Someone has purchased this on my behalf. I want you to be Lord of my life. If that hasn't been the case, why don't you follow along with me as I pray. Father, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that my sin leads to death and I am separated from you. And I realize that Jesus has come to die in my place, to take what I deserve upon himself. And I receive this gift of forgiveness. And I I repent. I I turn from my ways. and I don't want to rule my life. I want you to rule my life. Help me by your power that's provided by the Spirit to walk in obedience. Help me to follow you and submit all of my life to your kingship. In Jesus' name.